0: So what is it that you love about being Black? That's a great question, Keena. I love being Black because I'm different from everybody else. And the second reason, because Black people can do anything they set their minds in. What I like about being Black, it's just freaking amazing. We we are amazing. Every day is a good day for breathing. My black. favorite part about being Black is uh the originality love being black because I can put my hair to different shapes and sizes, and nobody can ever tell me how my hair can be. I do like the food. When people say black girl magic, that's for real. That ain't just because, because we just want to say that. It's real. We magic. We, we are so unique in everything that we know. Go ahead,
1: say it. Please say it. Please say
0: black. Please say black.
1: Please stay black. Please, please say stay
0: black. But I always was black. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the premiere season of the Please Say Black Podcast. It's your host, Joaquina Reed, and I am so excited about episode two of this season. It is featuring my friend Andre Henry, the author of the brand new book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. And y'all, this conversation is so rich. It is so... so 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 deep and you're so good it feels like the moment when you lock eyes with another Black person across the room you all ask each other that question with your eye contact which is are you seeing this are you getting this are you checking this and Andre is really able to talk about his book in relationship to how it is a, a a record of the experiences he has had as a Black man this book is such a tremendous resource for all of us who are trying to learn how to build intimate relationships with other people in a world that is incredibly anti-black incredibly racist and xenophobic and so really we talk to we really get to take time to think about the ways in which violent systems impact our most loving and thoughtful relationships. so get into it i look forward to seeing you on the other side of the episode I've given you all a fangirled and told you how thankful I am. So
2: I'm thankful to be on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. A little bit shell-shocked that I have today's guest. <laughs> and I did what the young people say is I slid into the inbox and I shot my shot with Andre Henry. <laughs> and it manifested. And so it's like, woo okay, okay. So I want to, for listeners who may not have heard of Andre Henry, I don't know how that's entirely possible. I'm going to say that Andre Henry is a artist, a performer, a podcast, an author, a published author, a (laughs) singer, a songwriter. I mean, there's not too much you don't do, Andre. But I want to know, I want you to know the first time I found out about you was because of your rock. (laughs) you're the black man on twitter carrying a rock around and i was like this is really interesting and then uh then from there i started following you on twitter Mm -hmm. and then the next thing you know uh you became a like a, a a motto in my life right like it doesn't have to be this way and people would use that phrase And so in some ways I got introduced to you from like the popular culture, right? Mm -hmm. And then from there, it's like, then I started listening to your music and following you on like Instagram and just, it's just like so much. So it very start, it very much started from like, what's this guy doing on Twitter to you wrote a book. (laughs) (laughs) So it is hard to pin you down. And I think that is probably, part of the magic that is andre henry is that you're so dynamic right so that is my introduction to you so you are the author of the brand new book all the white friends i couldn't keep Mm -hmm. and you are so much more so if you had to introduce yourself today right because we're i feel like we're all people who are growing every day how would you introduce Andre henry today
1: yeah
2: well i mean first off thank you for having me um uh you know, I just consider it my friend Kina asked me to be on her show and I was like, sure, of course. Um, and uh, I like to introduce myself as a singer, songwriter and producer um, with a deep passion for racial justice. Um, that's what I like to say because of, you know, the things that you mentioned. um, I feel like. We live in a society that likes to, or that by habit compartmentalizes things. And I think that's very, has a lot, has a lot to do with capitalism. Like you're a shoemaker, you're a banker, you're this, that, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, that's how I like to introduce myself. Um, And yes, I do write. Um, I, uh, you know, I have just published a book, so I guess you can call me an author now because it's published, but You know, all of those things are a part of a larger sense of purpose in the world, you know, to help people understand the power that we have, the power that ordinary people have to work together to change the world. Yeah.
0: You know, let's go ahead and file that under humble brag. You did it so well. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was awesome. It was such a humble brag. So here's the thing. One of the things that, i really there's a lots of things that i appreciate about your work brother and part of it is because and i and i don't want to sound like i'm being shady to anyone mm-hmm. but the authenticity is there right the thing that i often see is you working out your highest ideals right you're working out you know the values that you put out and i think it's very easy to say that i believe in xyz but like to be about that life, because to be about the life of seeking justice for yourself and others, it's messy and it's ugly and it's complicated and it's triggering and it's traumatic. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes people make it seem really sexy (laughs) right but there are days where you like look i know (laughs) like like it is not a game right like it is not a game and so i really appreciate the transparency you bring to everything that you're a part of okay y'all y'all know what's coming up next get ready for the blackest moment segment we're gonna be a little silly for a second okay and i want to ask you right what's the blackest thing you've done this week all right this is my favorite question it's my favorite favorite question the blackest thing you've done
2: i know and you know i I knew you were gonna ask me this and i've been thinking about it i felt like my answer is just like not very fun you know because i think the blackest thing i've done this week is actually i'm helping to plan like a like a series for black history month for an organization that i work with because i was really trying to think of like you know did i i am trying not to think of stereotypical things you know what i mean (laughs) like what did i do
0: well we're okay The stereotypical. I mean, one of my recordings, I was like, I made some black
2: eyed peas, you know, I made some navy Peas. I was hoping that I had something like that, but I don't have anything like that this week. I was like, you
0: mean you ain't you ain't singing the church choir? You ain't do a solo? You ain't hit nobody with the
2: oohs and the ahs? I didn't do any of those things, and I was like, now I'm all questioning my blackness all all of a sudden. I'm
1: like, man.
0: you a rubric okay i'll say <laughs> well it is the thing and part of what i think is cool is that you know i say it all the time we're so diverse we're not monolithic
1: yeah. um
0: and a, part of what i hope this podcast does is it kind of highlights like you know like being black and growing up in the caribbean is very different than being black you know the east side of la right so i think there's a richness in this if you had turned around and said the blackest thing i've done is like
1: make a cotton t-shirt. You know, I
2: don't know. <laughs> <laughs> <a cotton> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, no, you know, actually that does, does remind me. I did I mentioned this on Twitter earlier this week too cuz I just there's one day I was just like sending like all these funny videos to people, you know, some of my my friends and I was saying like I don't think they understand it like, you know, in a Jamaican family, your relatives that you don't really talk to especially if they're in a different generation. Like, that's the way that you keep in touch. You know, like, you don't call each other on the phone. You don't ask each other how you're doing. You just send them something you found on the Internet. <laughs> you just, without any context, without any greeting, you just, you just drop it in there. So I was doing that this week, and I was like, I'm definitely, like, emailing. I'm definitely not emailing. Oh, my gosh. I'm definitely, like, sending people messages like I'm their uncle or something like that. And I don't think they understand that if you receive a message from me like that, that means like your family. <laughs> so it's probably the most Jamaican thing I've done this week.
0: Well that that counts. It counts. I'll say, like, we're literally living in a time where people want to like act like enslavement didn't happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's like There's nothing radical about that. It's the truth, right? Like, you know, like, are y'all seriously like doing this? Like you, you know, and we live in a time where we all saw what happened at the Capitol last year, but people are dead ass out here being like, what do you mean it was a regular day in Washington?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: Huh?
2: What? (laughs) You know, the gaslighting is pervasive and it is systemic and it is very real. And, um, you know, you know, the, um, the first couple chapters of my book are actually about that dynamic, about the racial gaslighting that, you know, many of us experience as black and brown people, marginalized people living in a, in an anti-black society, you know, white supremacist society. And I, you know, a lot of it is based on a song that I wrote called Delusional, because that. So like my book before my book was in that form it was a it was a bunch of songs that i had written and released you know when i was waking up to racism and starting to speak out about it you know as, as an artist so anyway i had no idea how much more relevant <laughs> that was going to be by the time i finished the book because like you said you know we have you know we got donald trump trying to tell us that he won the election <laughs> you know we all We all saw that that did not happen, you know? Yeah, so the gaslighting is real.
0: All right, y'all. It's coming. Black History Moments.
1: This is your Black History Moment.
0: Black history is so powerful. It's a global phenomenon. And at the time of the recording, we are at the beginning of Black History uh, month. Actually, that's another black thing I did this week is tell the whole internet like I ain't doing this shit with y'all. Like, <laughs> <I'm> out because <laughs> I don't want to see all the shenanigans that are about to happen on the Franklin's internet because y'all can't get right. So I think that's another thing that was super black. I'm like y'all I ain't gonna have to do this with y'all. But with that being said, I like to think that every day we are making history. Mm-hmm. So, what Black history are you making today, recently, mm. in the near future? Mm-hmm. Because you are history, but mm-hmm. not like, don don dunk. Dun. Okay. <laughs> I don't mean it like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like the things that we're doing, people in the future are going to come back and be like, damn, Andre and that rock, you know, like, you've already made history right but what black history have you made of late
2: i have been thinking about this actually because you know i'm working on my my book tour and i have some really wonderful people you know in my life that i'm lucky to call friends you know and people who you know i don't know i'm just i'm really fortunate in that way um in ways that still continue to surprise me so you know i was thinking about my friend blair imani who is an author and an educator and you know, we're doing uh, an event in L.A. on March 24th for my book. And we're doing it because I I was on her book tour for one of her first stop in L.A. And we were done. She she leaned over. She whispered in my ear. She said, I better be doing your book. <laughs> event. And I thought about this uh, this week as I was asking her, you know, was giving it coordinating the details with her about mine and saying, like, you know, maybe one day in the future, You know how we look back and we see pictures of Muhammad Ali and James Baldwin together or MLK and Dr. King together or, you know, James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni having conversations or Bell Hooks and Cornel West in conversation at the new school. Uh, Maybe someday in the future, people will be like, yeah, Blair Blair Imani and Andre and Andre Henry were friends, you know. (laughs) Um, So I do feel like on that note as well, you know, I've had a few people this week tell me how much my writing and how much my work and stuff. They've just reached out and told me how much my work has meant to them. And that that means a really that means a lot to me um, because uh, or on a couple levels. Uh, one, I just want to make sure people know that I'm not just like, oh, man, I'm great. I wrote a book. I, I am these shit. You know, like I don't that's not how I feel. It's just when I started doing this work, there were so many people who told me that what I was doing was not making a difference and would not make a difference. And you know that voice kind of you know sometimes it's it's there you know so it, there's there's some doubt about whether or not you know what I'm doing is making an impact sometimes, um, especially lately. You know what they don't tell you about writing a book is especially if you're writing a memoir and you're writing from your painful experiences like that. They don't tell you how traumatizing that experience can be, and they don't tell you about the depression that was like that is likely to follow when you're done. <laughs> Uh, which is uh what I've been going through. It so, you know, and a part of that depression has been, you know, uh, at times wondering, um, I don't know, I don't know if your listeners are faith-based people or whatever, but I'm I'm gonna go there for a second. I remember when I was really uh involved in I you know I have two theology degrees, I used to be a pastor, all this kind of stuff. And so I read the Bible a lot. And there's this one story john the baptist uh is sitting in prison and he's asking people to go to jesus and ask if jesus is really the messiah now this is the same man who literally was out in these streets telling everybody that jesus was the messiah in fact he saw jesus on the street one day and was like hey y'all look there you go right there and um next thing you know a few years later he's sitting in prison he's asking his own disciples to go and ask jesus if jesus is the messiah and that is how i have felt uh in the past few months so to get a few messages this week from people saying you know that something I wrote or something I sang or seeing me with the the boulder that I lugged around Los Angeles for a while, impacted them, uh, changed their perspective, caused them to think something that has just meant a whole lot to me. And it does make me think that even in a small way, even if my my name is not as well known as any of the folks I mentioned earlier, like Baldwin and Giovanni and all them, which doesn't really matter in the, in the long run anyway, um, maybe. Not maybe. I'm a part of that. That those millions of ordinary people who have, you know, tried to do their part to to make this world a little bit better.
0: That was beautifully stated. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that you and this is like definitely like you re- let it be known that Andre railroaded the conversation. I didn't do it. Andre did it. <laughs> <laughs> but you bring up John the Baptist. Uh-huh. You know, I have a running list of like the people that I want to talk to when I get to heaven. Okay. and it doesn't include paul or any of those sexy theos. It's like the most ratchet people so john the baptist where's rahab right like where's tamar like i'm like where where where, where's the sister who like had the screw and nailed the the dude's brain out like those are the people i yeah, wanted yeah. to talk to and i uh mentioned this to somebody before like a, a week or so ago like that truth telling like mm-hmm. life is hard for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Especially now. Yeah. But there's something about being a truth teller that it hits different, like the young people say, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. and I've thought about kind of um, John, like, John. I mean, did you have to go around being like you're you're sleeping with like like why were you in people's personal sexual business, John? Maybe you wouldn't have gotten beheaded if you just kept your mouth shut. It wasn't your business. So it's just funny, but also really kind of point to what is the burden of being able to, or not even, I don't, I want to backtrack a little, not so much as being able to, but the burden of clearly seeing the truth and then always making a choice to speak to that, right? And I don't think people realize how heavy that can be to be a truth teller, especially in the world where so much is made to be a lie. So you said something about like really appreciating when you feel that you made a difference. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak from from the heart. Well, I've been speaking from the heart the whole call, but I think from your books, some I mean, the whole thing resonated, but in terms of like stuff that I read and I was like, that happened to Andre too? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I I I am a Bible, I'm a Bible study kind of girl. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to college, it wasn't good enough that i was involved in one on-campus ministry i was involved in two it was like mm-hmm. wednesdays methodist tuesdays bcm i was just like yes right. like that was how i codified so much of my identity yeah. right and you talk about i don't want to get into the dating part because that shit was just hilarious but oh, <laughs> read problematizing that. with dating right but i want to talk a little bit because you share a story about a friend named kevin
2: okay <laughs> yes uh-huh
0: who could not condemn?
2: Uh-huh.
0: All right, slavery
2: couldn't bring himself to do it.
0: He just couldn't. <laughs> right, he could not. And you gave him multiple chances. You were like, "Bro, like for the it. sake of our friendship, right? <laughs> you know, for the sake of a call, you know." Shout out hey, to the that can... that was a jam back in the day. Can you, you say that even... this? You wasn't even asking <laughs> him to be like a radical anti-racist you were just like dude can you just say enslavement was wrong and he was like nah bro, i can't i can't do that and yeah. so being in those spaces it just brought me back to that and I mean again this is your book so I cannot even imagine how the memory of that because I read your words and I was like it reminded me of being in those spaces where these are people you love you care about who you know we have the same values the same belief we're reading the same book how are y'all walking away like from like how are you counting me as a person, but also denying this very real experience I'm having. And so, you know, I guess the question I want to ask here is mm-hmm. Kevin was speaking about this benevolence, right? Or that's at least what he was hinting at,
1: right? Yes. The benevolent
0: mm-hmm. slave owner. And again, mm-hmm. w- this is where we are literally right now, right? People like, well, it's going to be bad self-esteem for white kids to hear about slave owner, you know, slaves, but also Why are y'all mad? Because they were good. They fed the slaves. They Mm -hmm. housed the slaves. So let's start there, Andre. Like how impactful has that mythology been to our community, right? So I want to be really specific because Uh in those instances when we're having people like Kevin Mm -hmm. in our lives, the good white people we mm-hmm. feel like we have to be silent sometimes because at least they're my friends, oh, yeah. or at least they're not hyper violent. Mm-hmm. So you know that benevolence. I guess we could tie it in. So now I'm yeah. asking you 60 different questions. Uh-huh. Let me try this one more time. Uh-huh. This we we have a way of categorizing certain white people as the good white people in uh-huh. our lives. Uh-huh. What impact has that been for us as a community of black folks?
2: So let me put this in a little bit of a larger context. So even though.
0: I just did a whole rumba. <laughs> like yeah. I was in my feelings and I was thinking of actual things that I had yeah. experienced.
2: So I kinda got lost a little bit. <laughs> yes, I good. And you know, I I'm trying
0: not yeah. to name names. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm glad that, you know, when you read that chapter that you recognized it as a familiar experience, first off, because even though the name of the book is All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, the book is not actually addressing white people the book is uh, the book is addressing black people
0: agree 100% yeah
2: primarily my you know those are the people i'm talking to primarily and i'm thinking of primarily when i was writing first off i thought of the andre that was that was going through all of that at the time and i wanted to write a book that that andre would have loved to have gotten at that time so someone can tell him, first off, don't you waste your time arguing with these white people. Uh, don't you be trying to meet
0: up with
2: Kevin for no. <laughs> don't you be trying to meet up with Kevin and talk to him about racism over drinks and stuff like that. And also, like, change is actually possible. So I wanted, because to truth be told, and I talk about this, I'm not proud of it, but, you know, and this is going to get to your this is going to get to some of the stuff that you asked is that the andre back then some of the stuff that even you named in your question that seems obvious obvious to to us today was not obvious to him back then you know um even just talking about like categorizing good white people and bad white people and some are super violent and some are not i didn't really know that back then i mean in a way i did because i grew up next to a klans member like uh, you know there was a klansman that lived next door to us who harassed our family when i was young so in that way yes i did know that there were people who were overtly virulently anti-black and racist Um, but i didn't even think about them in these terms right of kind of whiteness and whiteness as a way of being as a way of thinking as a as a type of mind control um that makes certain people dangerous i didn't think about it that way so and this is what this is what i meant meant by this i think this, this will touch on some of the things that you were asking the reason why i why i felt like i need to address that kind of andre and there are many black men in particular who i feel like are in that place where we're not necessarily very aware of the ways that we have been influenced by growing up in an anti-black world is for that very reason is that we grew up in the same world as white people we get the same education as white people um we are the uh, the in a white society they try to instill the same values that they instill into white people into black people and black and brown people and so <laughs> we need these kinds of wake-up calls right because when i was w- around kevin first off he never said nothing like that to me before I mean, people who haven't read the book yet when you because i don't know when this when, when this will air i'll give you a very quick synopsis of what happened with kevin kevin was my best friend in seminary for a while I mean I don't want to gloss past this but you know we don't have a whole lot of time to to get into it but my my stepbrother Jarrell was an army veteran struggling with mental illness and none of us knew and Jarrell shot himself in the head one um that fall um I think it was November yeah November 2014 uh Jarrell shot himself in the head and um you know, obviously I grew up with Jarrell and I I couldn't finish the semester. I couldn't finish the quarter. You know, I needed to go home and be with my family, be at the funeral, you know, I needed to grieve, you know, that loss. And Kevin was my Kevin was like my rock during that time as a friend. You know, he he emailed my teachers and Made sure that all my stuff was together so that I could finish the quarter and that I could get incompletes on my, you know, coursework instead of, you know, just not turning it in. You know, like uh, when I was having money trouble and couldn't pay my tuition, Kevin said, you need me to use my privilege and go over to admissions and, and, you know, and tell them, you know, to let you into class. So this is who this person had been for me, you know, and I could go down the list of other things that Kevin had done to be a good friend to me but when the Black Lives Matter movement started to really take off around that time, I mean, we'd already lived through the Ferguson uprisings, the killing of Michael Brown and all this kind of stuff, but this is around 2016 after Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed. That is when I started to see that there was this area of our of first off kevin's knowledge of how the world is arranged that is completely wrong right um and that is you know the existence the pervasiveness the the violence of systemic racism he he did not understand that but on top of that he was not willing to learn about that from someone who i i mean i thought i was as close to him as he was to me um and what what that showed that exchange between him and i showed that that chasm between us was not very long so anyway your question was about like how kind of that notion of good white people can influence us well I mean there was one time before the instance that I wrote about in the book and Kevin's not his real name y'all so don't worry about you know Kevin hearing this and him being embarrassed I mean I
0: figured that the publishers were like look legal ain't playing games
2: (laughs) yeah yeah I'm not including nobody's real names in the book so But there I remember, I remember before the the one that I wrote about, there was one instance where I finally opened up. And I don't know if you understand, I don't know if you've had this kind of experience, but like I, as a black person, had already been trained, right? Groomed, if you will, by this society to not talk openly with, to not talk openly in mixed company about what it means to be black and not to even and in some cases not to even acknowledge it to myself right because you're trained to believe that there are certain things that are out of bounds for you to feel or believe right being in this society but one day i just couldn't hold it any anymore i think it was after sandra bland and charleston it was like i think those were both 2015 right and i was talking with kevin and i just i just kind of like lost my composure You know, and I was saying like how much of a burden it felt like just to be in a black body. And Kevin just went silent. He didn't say anything. He just looked at me. It was like he was a frozen, you know, like when a computer freezes or something like that. Right. It was just he just was just not present. And I think that growing up in the kind of society that we do this anti-black society, this white supremacist society, made that reality, like that Kevin was anti-black. That It made it invisible to me until I really needed him to show up for me as a friend. And Blair gets on me for using this kind of language because what I used to say is that he couldn't, right? Like he couldn't be there for me. And in some sense, I think that that's true. Like if you really believe that you are a white person then you actually also believe whether you know it or not you believe that you are superior to others <laughs> and if you believe that you are superior to others then that sense of superiority depends on you having a counter an inferior counterpart right and so you cannot have your cake and eat it too and have empathy for the inferior counterpart <laughs> and have your inferior counterpart. You gotta have one or the other, because if you empathize with that person, and you can't keep them in that position anymore. So in that sense, I, I would, I, I. that's what I was thinking when I said he couldn't, but I think that Blair is right when she challenges me on this to say that there was an unwillingness, <laughs> there's a refusal, you know, to really uh, try to enter into the experience that we're having. Yeah, that's good, brother. I mean,
0: that's good. Um shout out to blair i'm going to be including their book in the show notes uh, cuz they've been mentioned a couple of times and they're amazing yeah i think you know and i and i'm always trying to find the language to articulate this you know some days i do it well and some days i don't right is whiteness as a construct gets created right and mm-hmm. this is what people don't realize like Right. Nobody was walking around white. Like, that wasn't even a thing, right? <laughs> historically, right? Mm-hmm. People were, you know, German or Slav or whatever. No one was just right. walking around white until right. people decided that this construct needed to exist to empower people to do damage to Africans.
1: Yes, yes. Right?
0: And so it becomes the ultimate political rhetorical strategy mm-hmm. to make everyone co-sign on the violence, right? And to that point, it feels a lot like people can't, it's so in the water, right? They talk about like the fish, you know what I'm saying? doesn't know its wet. It's so much in the water. The anti-Blackness is so much in the water that that hierarchy is so much in the water that people don't know how to decipher it. But when we get on our own kind of journeys, you know what I'm saying? He- healing journeys, decolonial journey, you start to be like, oh shit, this is what this is. And I think largely it's because you get to see it in yourself, right? And that's been what's true for me. Like, oh, I can I could recognize this to someone else because, like, I see this in me, right? And so I, I just want to lift up that no one who's listening to this on the call should feel bad for being like, mm-hmm. they got me, you know, <laughs> right? Like, how did I not know this? <laughs> don't don't feel bad about that, because yeah. the cause like you said, we all get exposed to the same. We're drinking the same shitty Flint water, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, now, I, I kind of want to like take us a little bit to the funnier side of things, okay. Andre, I gotta tell you, you talking about dating?
1: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you know,
2: wait before you even do that, I just want to tell you how nervous I was to publish that chapter, the black love chapter. I was okay. so nervous about sharing.
0: Why were you nervous, bro?
2: Well, I mean, first off, it is probably the most, it's probably the most personal chapter in the book, right? Like, I mean, I tell you about stuff I experienced with my friends and my family, but like what it's been like, what it has, what dating, some, a glimpse into what dating has been like for me. Cause that's not the totality, but that was one thing. The other thing I just like, man, <laughs> I'm gonna keep it real.
0: You put a buck. I, I was about to say, we, keep you keep gotta keep real. it 100.
2: I was afraid also that, like, you know, some people are very judgmental about you dating outside the race at all, right? Now, I grew up, you gotta understand, like, I come from an immigrant family, I come from a Jamaican family, and in Jamaica. Even though I wasn't born and raised in Jamaica, those are my parents. Those are the values that they instilled in me, right? Like I went to school and and I went to school with African American kids, but I came home to, you know, rice and peas and curry chicken and planting and curry goat and all and something like that something. Right. So um and in and in their in, in that mentality in Jamaica, like they don't really think about race in that way. Cause the country's like 90% black. <laughs> you know, so like we don't really think about race and you have and in jamaica you have people who look like they just arrived there from china who've been there who've been born and raised in jamaica they speak patua you know what i'm saying they you know so it's just different the way they're thinking so i was just there's a little bit of shame i was like man people gonna judge me for dating outside the race to begin with but you know anyway so sorry sorry to interrupt you but i just wanted to share like i was it was very vulnerable to me and very scary i'm still anxious about it like Like, you just you
0: you let you let the the business you let the business be (laughs) told but listen you gonna you gonna get some people delivered in that though right i mean like there's a we don't have time to break all of the moving parts there down right yeah the ways in which we have we again have internalized feelings about beauty standards and all that shit right but outside of the vulnerability of that right there's the truth of like you use the term negrophilia and i promise i have never seen that shit in my life I'm like, well, like coin This, how did I miss this?
2: I learned, I learned the term "negrophilia" from reading the Afro pessimist literature that I re- mentioned in the, in the chapter. Yeah.
0: So, you know, we can pull back, zoom in, however you want to, because it's it's my laughter, but your real life. Right.
2: <laughs> well, I'm glad that you found it funny. You know, like I
0: I, mean, I, I I did. I ain't even gonna lie to you. I was just <laughs> glad. but I was like, especially okay, so. Let me set this up yes, i'm setting it up for the author of the book right uh-huh. but y'all andre's dating this with this person named lisa lisa's mm-hmm. like <laughs> yeah. come to my parents house they've oh. done it. they've they've become anti-racist they've yeah. been doing the work
2: <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
0: but you're still having to have these side conversations
2: yeah see that was a that was a really um And that was really difficult because, you know, (laughs) Lisa was a really good friend to me, you know, and they were very supportive in some ways, you know, Um, but the microaggressions, because, I mean, I was still kind of, I mean, that was when I was getting, I I write about, I was getting very deep into the kind of the Afro-pessimist literature and seeing their perspective on, on race and all that kind of stuff, and a lot of it I Well, first off, first off, there's a bunch of Afro-pessimist literature that I can barely understand because it's so academic. Oh, yeah,
0: it's, it's dense. It's yeah, dense. It's and so I'll put some stuff in the show notes, too, but I'm about to say, like, walking around after I read Christina Sharp, I can't have a conversation the yeah. rest of the day.
2: Yeah, it's so dense. So that's one thing. It's, it's kind of exhausting to get into, but then the perspective can be so bleak, you know um that it was not a good time to be dating a non-black person while reading afro pessimism because i would look at her sometimes and just resent her
0: you yeah. like is she planning my death she's ah. like, like she want to feed on my course
2: <laughs> right you know like that kind of stuff and so and so that i think also heightened the microaggressions it heightened my awareness of the microaggressions but also heightened the, the experience of them too because uh, there, there were several I think there were maybe three instances that I might have mentioned in the book um, but one of them I think the Halloween one was is a good example like we were out on Halloween we saw this white woman dressed as a stereo in the stereotypical you know Native American costume and I said facetiously to her I mean somewhat facetiously to her I'm gonna ask that woman if she's indigenous you know um, and in hindsight right now I think that what I would have Love to have was a relationship with someone who understood why it would be problematic to be dressed that way on Halloween. If you're not, indig- I mean, I don't think an indigenous person would do that on Halloween. But why is in why it's inappropriate for a white person to be dressed like that way on Halloween? And for us to you know kind of snicker about it together because you know be like, listen, you. Andre, you know, you're not about to go confront that person in the middle of this bar, you know. Um, but the playing of, de- but the devil's advocate playing.
0: <laughs> well, and, and that's what I'm saying. I was just like, how much are you going to have to do? Right. Like, how many? And the thing is, like, building intimacy is hard. hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's made that much harder when you're having to translate, and that's what it felt like some of those experiences were.
2: And that was something I didn't, I didn't realize that I would have to do. Like when I, when I started getting into the work of actually speaking up about racism, um, our friend, our mutual friend Nandi told me, Andre, just watch out now because there's gonna be a bunch of white women after you. And I didn't know what they like were talking after about. After you,
0: like the sexy kind of after oh, you. Uh, like...
2: Yeah, they're gonna be after. They're gonna be after you. <laughs>
0: <sexy>. <laughs> like bomb check a wow wow. Yeah, they're
2: gonna be looking for sexy time with you now. Oh and, yeah,
0: because you could be the black guy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, I didn't know that, and it turned out that that was actually true. You know f- what what they said to me that you know it did bring a lot of attention from non-black women, from white women. And it wasn't like I just started going out and dating white women then, you know, it was just, but what I didn't realize was that if I continued on the path that I was on, that if I partnered with a non-black person, it would be very, very likely that I would have to do that kind of educating, experience those kinds of microaggressions. And even if the my partner and I, even if we had a great connection and I didn't have to do that stuff, they have a whole family of non-black people, you know. So there, you know, there's likely to be, you know, something there. So it's just something I I hadn't really considered. So uh when <laughs> that chapter that you're reading, there's a whole excerpt that didn't make it into the book. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about it.
0: Okay, wait, I need to make that sound. <laughs>
2: Exclusive hot shit, high shit. <laughs> no, I might release this as something else, you know. But that book, uh, sorry, that chapter initially started with with these words. I don't hate white people, but I did for 15 minutes in a church service, and I told this story about I told this story about how I had found by that time that I literally had like emotional hatred in you know for for a good 15 minutes not like you know but yeah for 15 minutes and I told that story so that hopefully that by the time you got to me talking about me dating you know a Chinese American woman a uh am <laughs> gonna it, on a yeah. Middle Eastern which yeah. I thought we don't say Middle Eastern anymore but you know uh so I would say Swana. You know, um, and all that so that you would understand how just frustrated I was in general. <laughs> but that part didn't make it into the book. But anyway, that's where I was, you know, yeah. with that. And I found that that relationship with Lisa in particular, like she found herself playing devil's advocate often. And it really had had me thinking, like, why do these people like want to like, why do they want to do that? What is this impulse inside of non-Black people? That makes them want to challenge everything that you say. Want to use your presence as as some kind of shield. And in some ways, in some ways, there's there's a tad, there's a little bit, there's like a dash, a little sprinkle of, well, you should know I'm not racist because I'm with you.
0: Well, and and I mean, again, the to unpack that, like the the, like, your story made me think of a student I had once, Uh athlete, star football player, Uh all the cliche shit. Okay, right. Mm -hmm. And they were in my office for office hours once. And they said, I don't even know how this came up. I honestly don't. And it it made me go like, what did I do wrong in this conversation? But he basically said, all my white girls, Mm -hmm. I give them permission to say the N word when they effing with me. Uh, Again, I don't know what I had done to make the student feel like we were that familiar, uh, but whatever. And I said, well, what happens when you stop seeing them?
2: Right, right. But he
0: didn't have an answer, right? Exactly. And so I think what this book is going to do is create a lot of, like, put your attention, will maybe remind people of the tension they have. And, like, what guardrails are created in interracial relationships, mm-hmm. right? You know, I talk about, like, the Black card. And, I mean, as a Black woman, I'm going to say it feels like Black men be handing out more, but, you know, right. we don't have the data. No, we, <laughs> we don't, we 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 don't got that. the data.
2: <laughs> when you talked about your student, that reminded me. That's exactly I wrote about that exact dynamic in in the chapter where one yeah. of the women that I talked about that I met on Tinder kept uh-huh. saying N word with me because her ex black boyfriend told her, that
1: her right?
2: And I was like, we need to have a public service announcement. Black men, stop doing that. You know, stop doing, it. doing that. Stop- I don't
0: know if it's because the lights get off and then people get excited, but please, I you mean, know. <laughs>
2: I, I hate to take it, I hate, I mean, I hate to take it here, but like, you know, I don't really hold, I don't really hold many punches in the book, and it's not for people who have like, you know, Puritan sensibilities, listen, like, if you, if you need to keep a veil over, you know, the world, then this ain't the book for you, but, you know, there's a whole thing, um, like you said, when people turn the lights off, what do they be doing, I mean, there's a whole thing of like race play, you know, where, you know, this is, this is a taboo for some people, so, somebody out there apparently you know somebody out there apparently does not like you know doesn't mind being demeaned racially in the bedroom you know what i'm saying now listen that's your business <laughs> you know uh i'm not i'm not here to judge nobody but people need to understand like consent is a thing <laughs> you know what i'm saying
0: talk about it and we need to talk about it in the community right like we need to start having those conversations about consent and boundaries. Yeah. Okay, so what pre, I feel like you've already hinted at this, so I don't wanna ask this explicitly, but I do wanna ask who's going to be, who needs this book the most right now and why?
2: Oh, that's a hard question, you know, because, you know, in the introduction I write about this, um, I write about the, I write about apocalypse, apocalyptic uh, literature.
0: Y'all, and- it's such a powerful metaphor. It's
2: such a powerful metaphor. Thank you. Like it um and essentially, you know, an apocalypse is written to reveal something about the world, right? Usually to pull the veil back on how oppressive power is working, right? But the most the most popular apocalypse that we know of is the Book of Revelation in the Bible, right? And I just think it's super interesting that John wrote Apocalypse in Greek, you know, To basically interrupt uh, the the good standing that the empire had in the imagination of his own people who were marginalized and oppressed by that system right that's why he wrote that that scroll and. um, I wrote this book because I needed an apocalypse when I was submitting to the gaslighting and policing of white people in my life, but I also know. I know lots of black people that are doing that like I I, it's and it's some of that is like the black MAGA crowd for sure, but it's not just that it's it's the ways in which our miseducation about our own society and our own struggle uh, causes us to either let uh, a lot of things kind of slide or convinces us that change is not possible or at, at worst, you know, gets us to actively participate in our own subjection, right? That part. Yeah, and, and I think that the people that I, that I had in mind when I was writing, um, were Black men in particular, um, because it's not just Black men that believe these things, but when I talk to Black men, (laughs) uh, in particular, Black cis het men, um, we tend to have really bought into a lot of the, I mean, I, I mentioned this in the in the first part of the book that support for Trump went up around among black and Latino men in the 2020 election. <laughs> you know, like after four years of that, black and Latino men were more, you know, supportive of Donald Trump than they had been before. Are those the people who need it the most right now? I think it's one of those audiences, right? At the same time, I think that this book is especially important for people who feel like they want to be a part of the solution, but they don't know enough about how nonviolent struggle works. Because nonviolent struggle is a very powerful weapon, (laughs) Uh, a, a very powerful tool to achieve that revolution of values that Dr. Martin Luther King talked about, you know? Um, And so what I see, and I wrote about this, I think in chapter eight, yeah, chapter eight, the revolution chapter, we saw a lot of people go out in the streets in 2020. And, you know, a lot of people went out and they had their signs and they were marching and, you know, they they knew the chants and all that kind of stuff. You know, I was out there in the streets with y'all, you know, but a lot of people went home. And first off, I'm not saying anything's wrong with going home, listen. You, we're people, we got to rest, you know what I'm saying? We got to do that kind of stuff, you know. But Dr. King says something in 1968 that I think if he were alive today, he probably would say now, like if, if, he had, if he had been part of the Black Lives Matter movement. And he said that all these people joined the Civil Rights Movement and were supportive of the Civil Rights Movement uh, when it was about the bad behavior of overt Southern white races. What they hated was the, uh, the, the virulence of white supremacist violence in the South. They hated the spectacle of violent anti-blackness like, uh, like Bull Connor sicking dogs and water hoses on children and students and, and, and other ordinary people out there. In, but they weren't ready for genuine, or they weren't interested in pursuing genuine equality and um and and they weren't committed to the type of uh revolutionary consistent sustained nonviolent revolutionary action that it would have taken to take the civil rights movement from its inception to its goal and i i wonder i suspect that we are in a similar place 2 years after the murder of george floyd on tv that people filled the streets because they were livid about the spectacle of Derek Chauvin kneeling on 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 Mr. Floyd's neck. Do those people understand that this society, which was founded on the principle of white supremacy and answered blackness, has to fundamentally change. It has to change at the root. And do they understand that um, it is going to take sustained strategic Nonviolent uh, struggle in order to achieve that goal. I don't think they do, and even if they do hold the value of nonviolence, a lot of people don't understand how nonviolent struggle works. And I keep saying nonviolent struggle because when we say nonviolence, it just it gets it's so abstract, philosophical, woo-woo. You know, people think that it's, you know, it's it's a position that you hold in your heart, but really, it's about action, right? And this book goes into detail. Because I've been on a journey to understand that, and you know, I've, it's brought me into the company of people who have started international movements, who toppled dicta- dictators in other countries and all that kind of stuff. And I put all the information in the book. I put it in one place for people. So I really feel like it's it's as much as it's for people who may be uh, beholden to the the white supremacist common sense that dominates this society. Um, or has a hold on our imagination and our common sense that I also feel like it's just as much for people who say that they want to be a part of the problem. Uh, or, sorry, want to be a part of the solution <laughs> that, that, that they want to be part of the solution, but need some practical steps to actually make that a reality.
0: <laughs> I think, I think, um, I mean, I want to plus when everything you said, and I want to kind of make space that so much is going through my head as you talk. Right. Mm-hmm. You said something earlier and that, that's gonna this is gonna become another podcast episode, but
1: mm-hmm.
0: what we need as black folks,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the awakening we need
1: mm-hmm.
0: is recognizing this violence lives with us, you know. And yeah, I mean I it's cringy to say I cringe when I say it, you know, and I say it jokingly, if we if all the white people disappear tomorrow, they just disappear. Mm-hmm. White supremacy is still here. Anti-blackness is still here, right. and that's an honest thing we have to. We're gonna have to figure out how to talk about in community, right? Yes. Like, how much of this water have we drunk in? Yeah. And then moreover, for people who are not black but who might identify as people of color, recognize the ways in which <laughs> culturally, historically, narratives have been created, right? So you're dating these people who have been conditioned to minimize the anti-Black issue experience because oh, yeah. that's part of the role like everyone has a role out here right right so those are some really honest conversations that I hope people are having and I think your book provides the resource for that okay last thing uh-huh. last thing two friends walk into a bar in LA with your book
2: <laughs>
0: what happens next <laughs>
2: Two friends in, L- in LA walk into a bar with my book. It depends on who these people are, but I mean. I
0: it's Lisa feel... and that other girl you were dating. No, I'm just joking. That just... <laughs> <laughs> was a little ashamed. <laughs> Lisa and that other whole girl. <laughs> they have a good time.
2: <laughs> they have a good time saying, Can you believe Andre did that? Um, Andre... He wrote
0: about us in the book together. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, two two people walking in, in walking to an LA bar with my book. I think that depending on who they are, either they're going to have a really great conversation about stuff that they didn't know about how social progress happens, um, or they have a really great conversation about you know. Uh, waking up from the common sense of of colonialism white white supremacist whatever you want to call it you know uh, white supremacy anti-blackness or they have a very difficult conversation <laughs> you know um, about some of the things that they may not okay they have had language for before writing the book but there's some there's some dynamics in their relationship that needs some addressing you know um and maybe they're not friends after that conversation in the way that they were before
0: and that's okay right and that's okay learning how to you know whether you realize it or not you gave you're gonna give people some permission to dissolve things that they never thought they could dissolve
2: and they need to you know what i'm saying like that that's what i learned was oh man this was so this this these were painful things to live through that i wrote about you know cuz some of these people i really did cherish those relationships very very deeply but at the end of the day uh, who was it? Was it Toni Morrison who said you have to walk from, walk away from the table where love's no longer being? Served? No, it was Nina Simone. I think Nina Simone said you have to walk away from that table where love. It love's
0: was somebody, served. black
2: woman. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Nina Simone. Where if love, you have to walk away from that table where love's no longer being served. And um, you know, the thing that I feel like, and I, I, I a part of me is a little bit concerned that the book is so multifaceted because like it would it would have been really easy. Or to to walk away with a thing if I just wrote a book that was just about nonviolent struggle, just examples of, you know, successful nonviolent struggles or whatever. But one one aspect of this book is um is my own decolonization journey that I'm on, you know, me unlearning the the values, the behaviors, and all that kind of stuff that that white people try to groom me in as a black man. And with and with every relationship that is broken in the book in each chapter i feel like i you see me gain more space for myself to become the person that that's
1: that, good. I, that
2: I actually am you know um you know in the last chapter last few chapters i talk a lot about jamaica and reconnecting with my with my uh, jamaican heritage my jamaican roots which i've always been proud of you know but especially with my dad my dad and i start speaking Patois together we ex- exclusively speak in Patois together, you know, and I write about that in the book. And um, I write about how, like, my father is descended from the Maroons, you know, in Jamaica. And um, for those who don't know, the Maroons were, they were enslaved Africans who escaped from slavery and went and built their own communities in the mountains of Jamaica, when the when jamaica was uh ruled by the spanish the british came in drove the spanish out and then the british tried to go up into the mountains and bring these uh, these uh these african people who had uh escaped back and they lost <laughs> they could not bring these people out of the mountains
0: you said that so di- so 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 prof- like diligently you left out all the like
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what they lost
2: because they got their ass. <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah, they they tried they tried to they tried to force they tried to use military force to get these Africans to escape from these from the plantations back onto the plantations and they lost. And um my father is descended from them and he's very very proud of this, right? And this is a history that I I wouldn't have learned in school, right? Because America thinks it's the center of the world, and so they barely teach us Black American history. Why would they? Why would we hear about the Maroons in Jamaica?
0: And they flipped and they flipped the map to reinforce that shit.
2: (laughs) Right, exactly. So. So this is something my father talks about a lot. He's talked about it for years. As far back as I can remember, he always talks about it. And he says, he said a lot of, uh, there are a lot of things that I've talked to my father about, passions that I have, dreams that I have, all that stuff. And he would say it's in your blood. And so this is one of those things. So anyway, in the last chapter, I write about how like me learning that uh, even though white people tried to tell me that. Uh, for instance, it's not okay for me to be angry or to show anger about systemic racism. Um, or they basically they tried to they, they try to keep me in so many different ways from fighting for uh, my own freedom. Right. But that is in my blood. Right. I come from people who refused to be enslaved again. <laughs> you know, their DNA is in me, <laughs> you know. And with each chapter, as I lose relationships with people who are trying to keep, uh, who are trying to keep me under control, I gain more space for my ancestors, right, who fought for their own freedom in Jamaica. I gain more space for that, and I, I talk about how there is a maroon warrior in me that wants to walk free in the world. Um, and so, yes, to your point, there will be people that we have to let go in order to really do the work for us to be free as a collective and even to live with more freedom as individuals in this world and it's okay and it is it may be scary it may be painful but you know you gain more space or at least I did I gained more space for myself and I hope that people will experience that as well as they let as they let people who refuse <laughs> to to grow with them as they let them go
0: Look, I just I want you to I want you to call me, message me, email me when you get the first letter from someone who say, "I'm I left my husband after <laughs> uh-huh. 16 years." I said it don't have to be this way. I'm tired. <laughs> to be this way. You know. you right. I'm just saying, and then you like you can be like, Keita
1: called it. Keita said
0: this is what-
2: <laughs> I'm not telling nobody to get divorced, but it wouldn't be the first time.
0: What to buy a copy for you and a white friend, but also <laughs> maybe <laughs>
1: somebody
0: you just swiped left on on Twitter, uh-huh. like, buy a book for your pastor, just buy the book, you know, and I'm excited. And this book, this is going to actually premiere the week your book comes out. So oh, it's like, ooh,
1: wonderful.
0: woo, so we, we out you.
2: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay. Go live your best black life.
2: <laughs> you too talk to you later
0: thanks for listening to the please Say black podcast and I am so excited to be your host Joaquina Reed I hope today's episode really connected to you in a deep way and I want to encourage you to check out the episode notes you can find out more information about me how you can support our podcast and of course find out more information about our dope guests get lastly make sure you follow us over at Instagram at please Say black I want to leave you with this blessing from our tremendous ancestor, Malcolm X, that says, I pray that God bless you in everything you do. I pray that you will grow intellectually so that you can understand the problems of the world and where you fit into it, into that world picture. And I pray that all the fear that has ever been in your heart will be taken out. So stay black, stay black, and be blessed. If you don't mind, I would like to get a little rest now. Catch y'all next time.